Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. It's a great atmosphere. This is just so good. And, um, and uh, I wouldn't have mind if you had just stayed right there. A long time ago, one of my friends who was in heaven was having his first encounter with the presence of God. Um, our pastor had just prayed for his daughter who was having a real challenge with coughing. And, and so he prayed and the Holy Spirit came and she stopped coughing immediately. And, and my buddy, his eyes were, were, were big, huge. And they came back into the living room and sat down. And, and all of a sudden, he just started poking his fingers in the air like that. And his wife looked at him and she said, Terry, what on earth is wrong with you? He said, Charlotte, it's so powerful in here, you could plug in anywhere. And he was feeling the power of God, and he felt it there, and he could feel it in the living room. And, and that's the way it's been here, it's this way. It didn't take five songs to get you there. And we were, we could have camped right at that. Just tell me what moves you. Tell me what moves you. When you find it out, wear him out with it. See, that moves you. All right, have some more. Tell me what moves you. Wonderful. I have to tell you this story of Laser. Laser was called Laser the Ugly Butcher because he was ugly. And uh, there's some people who are homely and there's some people who don't look good and there's some people who are ugly and, and they admit it. And, uh, and he gets known by that. And for him, it's no longer a, an, uh, one of those things where you say to people and you're mean. It's because it just becomes an affectionate term. And, but he couldn't find a wife because he was so ugly. But in the Jewish community, they have these people who find wives for folks. And so she came into his butcher shop and he looked and he says, can I get you some meat? She says, no, I got good news for you. He says, why? She says, I found a wife for you. He said, for me, Laser, the ugly butcher? She said, yes, for you. And she's beautiful. For me, Laser, the ugly butcher, has a beautiful... She said, yes. And he, she showed him the picture. And uh, he said, she's beautiful. He says, Laser, and on top of that, she's rich. She's rich, and she's beautiful, and she wants to marry me. She must be crazy. And the lady said, well, you can't have everything. <laughs> In the kingdom, you can have everything. But I'm so glad to be in this atmosphere. And um, Cole asked me to give a title, and so I have a title. But I have to tell you uh, a story before I tell you what the title is. <laughs> I was in London, England, and... Um, and driving in London is a nightmare no matter what time you're driving. But if it's rush hour, it is really crazy. 
and the residential areas have these posts right in the middle of the street so that only cars can come through and not trucks or buses. And uh, the guy we were working with, Tudor Bismarck, he was having a meeting there, and we were traveling from the hotel to the venue, and you had to go through a neighborhood um, that had these pieces in it. And so the guy who was driving this small transport bus, he says, I can go through this neighborhood. And the guy said, well, you can. He says, I can get through these two posts. And so he stayed over on this side, and on this side where he was was a post, and to his left where we were sitting, and I could see it, was a light post. And he's just negotiating his way. Anybody here from a Jamaican heritage? Anybody, you know any, any Jamaicans here? Any West Indians? Okay, then good. It's kind of like Hittites. <laughs> They're not here, so I can tell this joke. It's not a joke. Act. This is really a true story. So we're driving through, and I'm looking at this guy because on our side, I could see he is coming this close, Tanner, to this pipe. And, uh, and I hear him say to his friend, what, what, he would, what he would like to say was, friend, I know that you think we have enough room to get through without crashing or smashing up this mirror, but I'm telling you, we don't. He didn't have time to say that. What he said was, small up yourself, man, small up yourself. <laughs> and I thought, that is so cool. He reduced it to small up yourself. Well, the story continues because a couple of years later, I'm standing in a church in, in Boston, and, and I was a speaker. It was a nice service, big convention, about 3,000 people there. And they had done every kind of preliminary that you could do before you put up a speaker. And then it was my turn, I thought. And just before he introduced me, this guy stood up and he started speaking in tongues for about three minutes, four minutes. And then when he finished, he translated or interpreted what he said for another three minutes because it was that long. And I thought, man, come on, Bishop, you know what this is like. This guy's just absorbing time and showing off and... And he didn't say anything. And so the guy, when he got finished interpreting what he said, he, he spoke in tongues again. And I was so ticked. And I just said, come on, man. And, uh, and when he interpreted, it was the outline of the message I was getting ready to preach. And the Holy Spirit said to me, so Garlington thinks he knows tongues and interpretation. And then he said, Small up yourself, man. <laughs> and I did. I don't complain when people speak in tongues. I just say, hey, it may be God, it may not be. But I love the idea that when you're in his presence, it's simple to stay small. It's very simple to stay small. And when you don't know how to do that, you get into serious trouble with God, I was I was singing at one of Lamar Boschman's uh, conferences where they would bring all of the worship leaders in the world together, and there were about 2,000 of them. And um, so I was the featured speaker, and then they asked me if I would do the special music, and at that time we were doing soundtracks. And I had the soundtrack by Lionel Harris, I Want to Know Christ. Anybody ever hear me sing that song? It is so powerful. I want to know Christ. And then at the as he finishes the song, he hits his high note, and then he hits another high note, and then he crescendos with another high note. 
And at that time, I had a voice that could do it if it would do it right. And I was following the song, I was following the soundtrack, and I was doing great. I knew I was hitting every part of that song just like he sung it in the studio. And I heard myself say, Garlington, you have never sung this song like this before. In fact, Larnell has never sung this song. <laughs> I'm, I'm just telling you the truth. I'm not just preaching. I, because you, <laughs> you need to hear what I want to say. And so when it came to that point, so I heard myself, I heard myself say, hit the high note. And I went for it. I didn't know notes could move. <clears throat> <clears throat> I want to know Christ. I never did hit that note. Just it was. Now, if you've just been in a really small church or something like that, and you messed up like that, you could just go off in tongues. I couldn't go off in tongues. Because there were 2,000 people there who were looking at one another, and they were all saying, train wreck. <laughs> and I couldn't say, hide me behind the sacred desk. I, couldn't, I could walk away because I was the speaker. I'm, it's my turn to preach now after, after this big mess. And I said, oh, man, what am I going to do? And I said, God, what happened? He said, you were doing well. And like you said, we were doing well. God, we were doing, he says, but then you said you were doing well, and I just decided to let you have it by yourself. And I said, God, don't ever do that again. He said, well, then don't ever say that again. <clears throat> humility is really important. And making, making a distinction between how you live your life and in humility, there are people who, who are great musicians, great singers, and many times they'll sing something and touch your heart in a deep way, and you'll come to them and you say, Emily, that was so powerful. That was so powerful. I was so blessed by that. And then somebody like Emily, she wouldn't do it, but somebody like Emily would say, that wasn't me, that was Jesus. And then I would say, no, that was you, because Jesus would have done a lot better with that than that. <laughs> So what happens is that when you encounter people who think humility is saying something that they think you need to hear, that's not it. Humility is essentially smalling up yourself. I want to give you a definition uh, for humility by a friend of mine who's in heaven now. And uh, his name was James Ryle, beautiful guy. And uh, we got it. Anybody remember James Ryle? Anybody know James Ryle? Beautiful. Huh? Oh, yes, Hippos in the Garden. That was his great book. Great book. Did you, did you get that call? That definition? There it is. All right. Here it is. Humility is the God-given self-assurance that eliminates the need to prove the worth of who you are and the rightness of what you do. That's James Ryan. I think it's the most powerful definition that I've ever heard for. Would you read it with me, please? Come on. Humility is the God-given self-assurance that eliminates the need to prove the worth of who you are and the rightness of what you do. St. Augustine said, humility is the mother of all virtues. A number of years ago, I was, I was awakened. We were speaking at a conference, and... Um, and I heard the Holy Spirit just simply say to me, recognize 
the season. Recognize the season. And then he just seemed to wax poetic and he said, realize the reason. Realize the reason. And then the second, the third statement was, don't forget the pleasing. And don't submit to the treason. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, what does all of that mean? And I went to 1 Samuel chapter Five, and I want you to go there with me, please. There's the clock. I'm at verse 17 of the New American Standard Bible, and I trust that you, you have the ability to take notes and write down what you hear. Sometimes we put stuff on the screen, and, and it makes you lazy. <clears throat> When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David, and when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines came and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. Then David inquired of the Lord. Everybody say that, please. David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So David came to Baal-perazim, defeated them there, and he said, read that place with me, come on. The Lord has broken through my enemies. Well, you can't read it. I'll just read it, come on. The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore, he named that place Baal-perazim. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed, listen, there's a phrase in the scriptures, and you, we read it last night, that when Saul was anointed, the Holy Spirit came upon him with power mightily, mightily. When David was anointed, the Holy Spirit came upon him mightily. Listen, Understanding what that means, sometimes it takes another passage of Scripture as you're comparing Scripture with Scripture. And the best one that I have is the one that we quoted last night where the Spirit came upon Samson mightily. A lion comes after him. He turns and, and he takes the lion out. The Bible says he tore the lion as you would a small goat. I don't know if I can help you with this, but think of a small goat where you, you grab the back of the legs of the small goat and you pull them apart and you tear the lion as, as, uh, or tear the goat asunder. He did that with, uh, with the lion. Do you understand when you grab a lion, you're making a statement. It's you. It's not me or you. It's you. You don't grab a lion if it's not going to be the lion that's going out. But he takes that lion out. Now, here's what I want you to get. You do remember that, Saul, that David said to Saul, I took out a lion, I took out a bear, and I can take out this giant. If you could get this in your mind, that he did none of that until the Holy Spirit came upon him after the anointing. When he is anointed, then all kinds of things take place. He's anointed in the midst of his brothers, and he's anointed in the midst of his tribe, and now he's anointed in the midst of his nation. 
when the Philistines heard that he had been anointed at that level, they said he's going to be a problem. When the enemy discovers that you have discovered the anointing, he wants you to know, I am not going to settle for you being anointed and creating problems in my world. He says, so I'm going to take you out. The devil knows more about the anointing than the believers know about the anointing. He knows that the anointing breaks the yoke. And if you're a yoke-breaking person, you're threatened to the kingdom of darkness. Jesus said, when I cast out demons by the Holy Ghost, then the kingdom of God is upon you. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to do good. Your task is, is recognizing that this anointing that it releases something in your life is, is recognized by the enemy in a way that you need to be aware of so that when you know he recognizes it, he needs to know that you know he knows. And you're not going to settle for him taking out anything. So when Saul says to David, he says, he's a, a giant. He's a man of war. You have, you, you're just a kid. And David says, in my anointing, I took out a lion and I took out a bear. He says, and that guy right there, I'm going to take him out. And so he, I think David went, approached him with a song kind of like, uh, what you going to do, what you going to do, what you going to do when I come for you, what you going to do? Because he knows he's going to take him out. He's saying to Saul, he says, I got this. He said, I got this. I got a bear back over there. I got a lion back over there. And I got a giant in front of me. And I'm going to take his head off. And I'm going to fix all this stuff up. And uh, Saul said, here, use my armor. No, I'm not going to use your armor. And so he goes out with five smooth stones because Goliath has four brothers. Oh, you didn't know that. Four brothers. So he, he's, he's prepared. He says, usually in this kind of world, if you kill somebody, then his family comes after you. So I'm ready for his family. David was a marksman. He could take him out. And when he took him out, everything started to go his way and everything started to go against Saul. Now you remember that I said to you that Saul was an anointed crazy man. Anybody ever served anointed crazy people? They are out there. They are out there. And they... They pastor churches, they lead networks, they, uh, they are people over auxiliaries in a congregation, they are people who really think they are in charge and not God, and, uh, and then you serve them, and they make you think that they're spiritual and you're not. Saul was crazy, but David recognized that as crazy as he was, he was still anointed, and David was living out of that admonition, touch not my anointed, nor do my prophet any harm. It's a time for war. Recognize that season. It's a time for war. If you thought it was 20 years ago, then what do you think it is now? 
look at the nation around you, look at the nations around you, but look at this one in particular and just simply say, and I've heard people say, I, I had no idea that anything that's going on in our nation would have been going on 30 years ago. And yet it's happening right in front of us and people think it's normal. This is normal. It's only normal outside of the kingdom of God. Shouldn't be normal at all in the church. It's abnormal. It's a time where David was a man of war. God is a man of war. That's what Exodus 15 says, the message translation. He's a fighter, pure fighter. God is not a pacifist. And neither am I. And I'm not a pacifist because I'm not married to one. <laughs> that lady will fight. And she will fight you if you mess with me. And that's the thing I want you to know. So <laughs> understand that. Worship and warfare are inseparable. You cannot separate them. He teaches my fingers to do battle and my hands to make war. Let the lifting of my hands be as the evening sacrifice. David understands all of this. When David comes back home after bringing the Ark of the Covenant in, he is celebrating and he is going for it. He, has, he is so passionate about his worship. He is so unbelievably crazy in love with God. He's dashing. The, the music has to be so good. And he's, he, that, he, he just comes out of his, his outer garment. And his wife looks at him and she says, I can't believe the king would have shown his arms in front of all the maidens of our city. I can't believe my father never would have done that. And David said, and that's why he's no longer the king. And he says, you think that I did something awful? She says, yes, yes. He says, you haven't seen anything yet. He says, in fact, I will yet be more vile than this. I will be even more undignified than this. If you are concerned about preserving your dignity, then forget deliverance. God, I want all that you have for me. He says, all right, hit the floor. I can't do that. We tell people, you want deliverance, you have to be willing to forfeit your dignity to get the, you can always get your dignity back, but there will be moments in your life when what you need from God is going to cost you your dignity. The lady was sitting outside her office. She was dressed to the nines. She was, her hair, her clothing, she was ready. She's going to go have a counseling session with a deliverance minister. When she came out of that office, <laughs> she was toe up from the blow up, but she was free. She was free. And there's a point at which in order to get what God has for you, you have to humble yourself in order to get it. And I wanna talk about this because part of the problem is the problem with Saul, and go with me now. In fact, let's just pick up on the last part of this outline. And it's celebrate smallness. Listen to this passage. This is, anybody have, the, you guys use the Passion Translation around here? Okay, so it's, oh, it's allowed. Okay. <laughs> Matthew 18, 1 through 4. 
At that time, the disciples came to ask Jesus, who is considered to be the greatest in heaven's kingdom realm? Jesus called a little one to his side and said to them, learn this well. Everybody say that. Learn. Say it to your neighbor. Come on. Learn this well. And here's what he says. Unless you dramatically change your way of thinking and become teachable and learn about heaven's kingdom realm with the wide-eyed wonder of a child, you will never be able to enter in. Whoever continually humbles himself to become like this gentle child is the greatest one in heaven's kingdom realm. I found a long time ago, in fact, uh, Mark DuPont. Mark DuPont had a prophetic word, and in the prophetic word he had, it was, it, it went something like this. You need to learn how to elevate your heart above your head. We must elevate our hearts above our head for the child that is about to be born is at risk if we don't elevate our heart above our heads. And he said, as he's standing there, he, he couldn't figure out what it meant. He couldn't interpret it. And he said, he said, I just walked away from it and just went on preaching. The following day, the pastor of the church said, Mark, my daughter's in the hospital and she's having some serious challenges giving birth. Will you go with me? And so Mark went. They walked into the room and it's buzzing with activity and she's lying in the bed and she knows something is wrong. And the doctor comes in and he says to her, the baby is in trouble and you're going to have to elevate your heart above your head. And Mark's eyes got big because he wanted to see how that was going to happen get out of the bed. She was big, pregnant, large. Got out of the bed. He says, get on your knees. She got on her knees. He says, put your head on the floor. That's kind of hard to do when you're pregnant. But put your head on the floor. Mark could see that the moment her head was on the floor, her heart was elevated. Did you know that worship is really elevating your heart above your head? That's what the worship position is. It's bowing down before him. When you bow before him, you are elevating your heart. You are saying to your head, you're not in charge. My heart is, and I'm going to elevate it. The greatest, the greatest, I feel like the most powerful act of worship depicted in the Gospels is when Mary, Lazarus' sister, comes to Jesus with an 80,000 bottle of ointment and breaks it open. It's not like uncapping. You had to break this open. You had to use it. She poured it on his head, on his clothes, mushed it on his beard, got down on her knees and wiped his feet with her hair and all of that ointment. And they criticized it. And he said, this is such a waste. You could have used this to feed poor people for her almost a year and Jesus said leave her alone leave her alone when she did that the Bible says the fragrance of that offering filled the room and here's what Jesus said about it wherever the gospel is preached they'll talk about this woman right here 
It was an act of worship. It was a demeaning act. It's, she took her glory and wiped his feet, all kinds of stuff on his feet because he's been walking through. But she doesn't care because she is humbling herself before God. Let me just say, say it to you like this. Whenever you come to a place and you're, and you're ready to do ministry and you don't know where to go from that, go to your knees, put your head on the floor, and say, God, here I am to worship. And you bow your heart and your head and your whole self and you say, God, I need your help. I ask God's help no matter what I'm doing, if it's before a crowd of 40,000 or a crowd of 40. God, I need your help. God, I need your help. You remember what happened at that conference with Lamar Boschman? So just <laughs> please... Don't mess up. I take it seriously. Humility is the mother of all virtues. If you think you're going to do something for God on your own, forget it. Jesus said it like this when he's ministering to his disciples. Apart from me, you can't do much. Right? No, apart from me, you can do no thing no thing. You can't do anything apart from me. I have discovered I can do a lot, but I can do a lot apart from him, but what he is really saying is that apart from me, you can do nothing that will have eternal value to it. You can do a lot of stuff. We can do, we can do good preaching, get our outline together. I can go to my logos and I can pull up scriptures and, and I can work this, but if Jesus isn't in it, it's not going to do anything. That was a great message, Pastor. And then they'll forget it the next time. He preached a great message. What did he preach about? I don't know, but he just jumped two feet off the ground and uh, was good. Yeah. I want to do things that have value for me. I was going to speak in front of, uh, you guys remember the, the, the Stand in the Gap event in 1997? Promise Keepers took about a million and a half guys there. And I was leading worship and I was speaking and I was saying, God, I'm going to bow my head in my heart and I'm just going to get down and I said please and I went on a 40 day fast because that's a great way to humble yourself and I said please Lord don't I said God I'm just asking you I'm, I'm just telling you the truth here all right sometimes I don't always tell the truth when I preach but um, <laughs> but on this occasion I'm telling the truth and my prayer was this because I had I'd been to Toronto and, and in Toronto, things happen to you that you wouldn't want to happen on stage in front of a million and a half people. So I said, God, I want to do this, but I said, could you just avoid smacking me down in front of a whole lot of people? I said, I said I'm, I'm willing to let you do that. But here's what I want. I want God to be satisfied with what's in my heart, and I want to find out what is it that moves him. And I have found that more than anything else, humility moves God. You know why? Because God himself is humble. Think about it. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden. Learn from me, for I am meek and I am humble. 
I am meek and I am humble. And then he says to the disciples in John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. If Jesus is humble, then guess what? Then the Father is humble. In fact, the Father said in Isaiah 57, 15, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with those who are lowly. You want God in your life, then you need to get as low as you can. Uh, Heidi Baker says, go low. And if you're around him, her at all, you're going to see her go low. At some point, she's going low. And you can tell the effect of that in terms of what her ministry has done in so many different places. Tell the person next to you, say, go low. He said, go low. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There are two instances, and I want to just point these out as I come to a close. Ahab was the most wicked king Israel had in all of their history. Northern kingdom, Ahab, worse. He was the worst of the worst. And then one day God said to Elijah, he says, tell Ahab, I'm going to kill him. Kill him, kill his kids, kill anybody related to him. I'm going to wipe them all out. And the Bible says Ahab put on sackcloth and went about for seven days humbling himself. And God said to Elijah, do you see how Ahab, and you can read this in 1 Kings 21, he says, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself? He said, yes. He says, tell him what I said I was going to do in his lifetime. I won't do in his lifetime because I see his humility. But I am going to do it. Ahab humbled himself. Would you say that please? Ahab. And it changed God's disposition towards him. Even though he's wicked, because he humbled himself, God has to recognize humility. Manasseh was the worst king in the southern empire. Judah couldn't have had a bad. He was so bad, he outdid the bad stuff that the people did. In fact, one passage in, in the prophets, prophet says something like this. God said, it never occurred to me to tell you not to do that. It's like a parent leaving home and coming back and found out that the cat was flushed down the toilet. And, but you didn't tell me I shouldn't do that. It never occurred. It never occurred to me to tell you, don't flush the kid down the toilet. I, yeah. Never occurred to me to tell you, don't burn up your babies. And Manasseh did it all. He did it all. Uh, they're called, you name it, he did it all. And he was taken into captivity. And when he was taken into captivity, the scripture says he humbled himself. He humbled himself. And God brought him back to his throne. Now, I don't want to say this because it's politically correct. But I will say this. Because it's correct to say it. Politicians who don't understand humility will understand what it means to be pulled down. I love our former president, but I wish, I just wish he wouldn't try to take credit for all that God did. I mean, great, great stuff. A lot of stuff happened, but it, it's, it's kind of like what Nebuchadnezzar did. Remember when God blessed him? He, God calls Nebuchadnezzar his anointed. Remember I said anointing was for 
purpose. What was his purpose? His purpose was to discipline the nation of Israel because they had failed to keep all of the sabbatical years and they had did, they had done wrong, and God says, I'm going to get you out of the land, and I'm going to sh I'm going to shape you. I'm going to get you to understand that I really am in charge. And so he brings Nebuchadnezzar in, who is a bad dude, and he will kill. And God gave him the power to kill and to make alive. He gave him authority over the birds of the air. I mean, it was just read, read it. It's in Daniel. Crazy stuff. And he builds this amazing empire. And then one day he steps out and looks around and he says, Is this not great Babylon which I have built? And God says, Oh man, I gave you a dream that warns you not to do that. All right, go, go eat grass for seven years. At the end of the seven years, you know, the first thing he said, he looked up and he said, You know, there is a God. Yeah. He says, and he will raise up one and put one down. God acknowledges humility. And this is what Daniel said to him when he had that dream. He says, break off your sins by doing righteous acts and being kind to the poor. When God blesses you, there are moments in your life when you say, God did this. And there are times when you sing and believe you ought to say, that was so good. That was God. I don't care what anybody says. That was God. That was not me. There are moments in my life when God touches people and there are things that happen in a service that I could not even take credit for because I didn't even know it was going on. When you said in your message such and such, and I said, I didn't have that in my message. I didn't say it at all. But I heard you say it. And I go back, I'm listening. I didn't even say it. But they heard it. It was like God spoke between the lines. Don't take credit for things that God does without understanding that unless you can't keep it up, it's going to get really rough. Stay humble. Say it, please. Say, stay humble. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let me just give you one comparison, or maybe two. Go with me to Psalm. No, you can't go to Psalm before you go to 1 Samuel 15. Samuel 15, and listen to these phrases. When Saul refuses to obey the command that God gave him, these are Samuel's words, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission, and you disobeyed the voice of the Lord. You were anointed, but your anointing ought should and ought to produce and steadfast obedience to God. Your purpose in being anointed, Saul, was to raise up a kingdom honoring me and recognizing me and doing what I said do. And his first act following his anointing was to go and wait for Samuel so he could offer, show him how to offer a sacrifice. 1 Samuel 10 1 Samuel 13, he gets there and Samuel doesn't show up. He says, wait for me seven days. Wait for me. Seven days didn't come. Or at least he thought. Then he says, boy, I better go ahead and offer the sacrifice. And as soon as he offered the sacrifice, here comes Samuel. I think personally Samuel was hiding behind a tree waiting to see what he would do. 
And he stepped out. He says, what have you done? He says, well, you weren't here like you said. And I just, and I just, I, he said, I forced myself to disobey you. He forced himself. Now, here's what I'd like to suggest. Stay small by asking for help, even if you think you don't need it. David inquired of the Lord. Ten times is written, David inquired of the Lord. Saul twice. And one of them was to find out who is the reason that we won this battle because I want to kill him. And the others, he went to a witch to find out why God wasn't talking to him. But David never took action without hearing from God. And he didn't let, he didn't let past events tell him what he needed to do when this event. When David said, God said to him, you go out and strike the Philistines and take them. A year later, they come back and he says, here they come again. He says, yes, you're still anointed and they're still threatened. He says, what do you should do? He says, don't do what you did the last time. So I say that. Don't do what you did the last time. Guys, have you ever done a song in worship and one Sunday and it went over like a, I mean, it was just, it blew the place up and you knew there was something on that song. And then the following Sunday, let's sing that again. And you did it again. And it went over. It was just so good. And then it got really rough in one place and you said, you know, this, it's not on our, our list, but let's do it anyway. And you do it and God shows up. And pretty soon you think, that song is magic. That's got fire. That song's got fire. And then one day you come and you say, let's do the song. And God doesn't come. He said to David, don't do what you did the last time. Humility is a willing to allow God to use you any way he wants to, especially if it's different than the last time. And so he's there. He says, well, what should I do? He says, this time, go and stand underneath the tree and wait until you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the trees, and then you'll know that I've gone out ahead of you. And David said, okay. Um, you and I would have said, could I have three scriptures? But David said, okay. He says, yeah, okay. Can you imagine what it's like to obey God when people are watching you and they're saying, David, what... What are the orders for today? Uh, we're going to stand underneath the tree here and we're just going to wait until we hear the sound of marching in the tops of the trees. All right. Okay, David, really, what's the artist for today? Come on. I know you're kidding me, right? Look at them. They are out there. They're beating their chests and everything. David says, no, I can't go. That's why in humility, you don't always tell people what God has said. You just go ahead and do it. You obey rather than try to explain God's wisdom to people. I don't know why the trees and the noise and the march. I don't understand all of that. I don't understand. I just know that there are things in the Bible that God says they were written for my encouragement and for my example so that through the patience and the encouragement of scriptures, I can have hope. Something's written in the Bible so that you wouldn't do what they did. Humility. Why are you doing that? Well, the Bible says. Well, where is that in the New Testament? I said, well, I've got, 
I've got one Bible that's old and new. Just because it's not in the New Testament doesn't mean it's not there. For years, they didn't have a New Testament, and all they preached from was from the Old Testament. And now we give up on the Old Testament? No, humility says there's a lot to learn. Look, here's, how old is the United States? Anybody know? How old is the United States? 400 years. 400 years. How old is the Bible? Look, your history, your history doesn't start in Philadelphia. Your history started with Abraham, who is your spiritual father, who messed up a couple of times, but he's still your spiritual father. And I go back to Abraham, and when people say, well, I'm an American, I am too, but before I'm an American, I'm a kingdom guy related to Abraham, and I can go back into the Old Testament and find out stupid things that people did and not do them. Are you all good? Are you there breathing? Just take a deep breath. David said, like a weaned child resting on his mother's bosom, I do not bother myself with manners that are too high for me. This is the king of kings, giant killer, bear killer, lion killer. He's all of that. And yet he is saying, but you know what? When I'm in his presence, I am just, I'm just a weaned child. I don't bother with matters that are too high for me. Cole has a brand new baby. That baby does not look up at the mother and say, what was the Tao today? <laughs> Babies don't care about the Dow Jones. They don't care about stock averages. They don't care about Wall Street. You and I, we have got to come to a place where we just simply say, God, I'm going to stay as small as I can as long as I can, and the moment you think I'm getting too big, just remind me of Lamar Boschman. And that's when you'll hear him say, small up yourself, man. Small up yourself. Stay small. Stay a worshiper. Stay a worshiper. Stay little in your own sight. You'll be okay. God bless. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.